Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 344, Theatre, the new playhouses. Now then everyone, to the chagrin of many, I tend to see the end of a reign as an opportunity to pause, look up a bit, look around, smell the roses, as it were. Often this has been an excuse to delve into the arcane mysteries of social and economic history, the glories of the poor law, the foreign country of early modern religion and sexual mores, economy, the monarchical republic of the parish, that sort of thing. This time, however, I have decided to wander into territory that is spread with personal thorns and which I approach in fear, terror and deep, deep misgivings. I speak, ladies and gentlemen, of culture, a genre with which I have no more than a nodding acquaintance unless motorhead can be said to be culture, which I guess they are in a way. But more specifically... I am going to venture into an area in which I have spectacularly little expertise. Renaissance English Theatre. So I must start with an apology. I know that many people love Shakespeare and Marlowe and all that with a passion. That there are reams written on the subject and the world around it. So I am probably going to annoy you with inanities, errors, omissions and all that. And if so, I am sorry. Anyway, that's what's going to happen. And not only that... It's going to take not one, not two, but yes, three, three episodes to get it all done. I am so sorry. Words cannot express my regret. And I'm seeking help with my behaviour. Also, before I go ahead, I ought to issue a trigger warning to episodes after the new tradition. So might I please warn you that there is a scurrilous joke about St. Peter in what follows. Right. So as regards English Renaissance theatre, I have seen the words golden age used. Hmm, what are we talking about with all this golden age malarkey then? Well, some when, early in Elizabeth's reign, to somewhere towards the middle of Charles's reign, England experienced a remarkable transformation in its approach and availability of the dramatic arts and a culture that flowered alongside it that was a lot of fun for a while. It sort of petered out maybe in the 1630s and was brought to an abrupt end by the civil wars and the long parliament, who cancelled it. So, that's the period I'm going to talk about, where this thing came from, what it was like, some of the characters to whom it gave a home. I'm not going to talk about the plays, really, except en passant, and you won't get a biography in any depths of the like of Marlowe and Shakespeare, but, you know, they'll probably put a head round the door. There's a context to the theatres that sprung up from around 1560, 
and the actors, playwrights, entrepreneurs and patrons that serviced a wildly enthusiastic audience. This golden age thingy, though, didn't come from nowhere. So firstly, there is the economic context, as I have covered in some grinding detail. For about a century between, say, mm, 550-ish and mm, 630-ish, England experienced a steadily growing population, which fed economic change. Prices rose, and we have inflation, a most alien concept to the 16th century mind. Wages fell. There was under and unemployment. Essentially, if you had land, you were made. You were getting more for your produce, paying lower wages so costs were lower. You had more disposable income. You could, if you so desired, have a hoolie. Or maybe build that extension to your house to get a bit of privacy or build that brick chimney you'd been dreaming of, of which more in a few episodes' time. So sorry again. Or, I don't know, you might go to the theatre. If you didn't have land and were a wage labourer, times were very tough. You might have to take the road and, shock horror, leave the parish where you were supposed to stay to go and look for work. On the way, you'd fuel fear of rising crime, vagabondage, a breakdown in morals, all manner of horrid things. You might get your ears pierced, and not in a good way. So, socially it was a time of turmoil and change, but for some, opportunity. The other salient fact is the population of London, which went just a little bit bonkers, growing from about 80,000 people in 1550 to 215 in 1601 and 350,000 in 1662. I mean, this doesn't sound to be a mega cosmopolis to the modern lug, but at the time it was an absolute warren. And look, it all grew up with a minimum of control, regulation, planning, sewage, so parts of it were an absolute steaming heap. To turn to the more cultural stuff, the theatre of Marlowe, Shakespeare and Johnson did not spring from the desert like flowers in the rain either. It sprang from many things. First and most obvious, of course, was the tradition of drama from days medieval, embedded very often in the religious cycle of the year and its associated feasts. In the town guilds, and fraternities in the mystery play cycles designed to educate people in Christianity's story. The traditional story has been that the Reformation and those nasty Puritans closed down all that. It's now generally accepted that in fact feasts and celebrations continued far longer than had been believed and sometimes just transmogrified into other forms. So national celebrations of Elizabeth's B-Day, for example, and as we'll see, into more secular types of clubs. And there are other important dramatic traditions that pre-existed too. So there was a great house tradition of the Lord and their minstrels, the jester and the fool, and the interlude, which was a sort of performance between the courses of a festive meal where the Lord entertained their tenants. Lords also rather encouraged the tradition of their players, tumblers and musicians, and they might travel around the countryside on their own when their Lord didn't need them at home, entertaining drawing crowds, making the odd shilling. Obviously, some thought they were little better than vagabonds, because there are people like that. So there was something of a tradition of these groups calling themselves by the name of their patron to give them a sort of aura of respectability. So, for example, they might call themselves the Earl of Leicester's Men, if they were the Earl of Leicester's Men, of course. 
all these kind of private venture events has been described by an historian as liminal. Now, I can confess to you on a personal note that the word liminal is much used in social history and has always been a matter of some impatience and unworthy irritation on my part. What on earth does it mean? I only use the word, really, just to share my irritation. It seems to me a word that looks mighty impressive, but obscures rather than illuminates. But I've come to realise that's just me being stupid. It means, I guess, peripheral, out of the mainstream, along the shoreline of society, as it were, which is a concept that does indeed need a word, and so someone came up with liminal, derived from the Latin for threshold. Anyway, I have now proudly joined the company of the obscurantist. Liminal, then. Celebrations like these popular festivals and interludes were often occasions where the normal social rules were inverted. At some, there were bishops of misrule, for example, or the boy bishop. Drama gave the opportunity to stretch things a little, to enact disturbing events and situations of conflict, politics, controversial ideas, poke fun at the great lord and lady, your social betters. It's been described as a social safety valve, a chance to blow off steam, which it was. But bear in mind that another way of looking at this is that it actually re-emphasised what the rules really were that were being broken here. The ceremonies and festivities actually reinforced community and what I believe we now call normative behaviour. Normative, I am told by my children, is not a good thing. I have always been, I am sorry to say, deeply normative. I shall try to do better in future. However specific communities dealt with their festivals post-reformation, other forms carried on in specific types of institution. The tradition of lords hosting players and organising masks in their great chambers or halls carries on from medieval times well into the late 16th and early 17th centuries. Great chambers were designed to be used for such events and for dancing, so for example, and evidence, there's a surviving cartoon of the life of one Henry Unton which still survives. Unton died in 1596. It shows a mask being performed in front of him by a circle of alternate black and white cherubs, and pairs of women in exotic dresses with red-painted faces. An orchestra of six plays music in the centre of the circle. This might be a good time to briefly break aside and talk a little about masks, since they come up from time to time and have done since we spoke of Anne of Denmark way back in the day, and have never really explained them. So they trace traditions back to various sources, to guisings, where masked figures would make a presentation with music, setting the scene for the evening's entertainment, and back to a popular tradition where masked figures from the community would suddenly appear in the Lord's Hall in a well sort of mm, surprise, I suppose, to sing and dance on a special occasion or festival for the Lord. And some say they can be traced all the way back to Italy and the tradition there of public pageants. But by our stage, basically, a mask is a sort of singing and dancing spectacle based around some allegorical story, something with a message, designed to paint the patron in a good, glorious and generally uplifting light. At court, of course, there would be elaborate set designs and costumes around it, which is where the famous collaborations of people like 
Ben Jonson and Inigo Jones would come in. In both the household of a great lord and at court, professionals would often be brought in to perform the singing and speaking parts, but participation by the household or court, family and friends, men and women, was very much part of it, especially the dancing. Oddly, though, masks were viewed very differently to plays, so taking part in a play was considered rather demeaning and always provided by companies of players brought in, not posh members of the household. Anyway, digression about masks over. We were talking about institution where drama was performed. Interestingly, or I thought it was interesting, the Inns of Court was one arena where there were very grand and elaborate festivals held at the Christmas revels. While no nobleman would have been seen dead acting in a public play at somewhere like the Rose or the Globe, who was perfectly acceptable at the Inns of Court, Robert Dudley presided as the Lord of Misrule at the 1561-2 Twelfth Night version. Another place was the Royal Court, of course, where plays and later masks were constant and active. One of the features of these institutions was that because of their nature, they retained a good degree of latitude to put on works that pushed against official royal policy as part of the courtiers' and Renaissance tradition of providing counsel and comment on matters of royal policy or deliberating in religious debate. So one of them, for example, even suggested that marriage was the right tactic for a queen to take, which, of course, didn't normally go well at all with her madge. Another was about King Arthur, where he pits the king against the bellicose advice of his council, and that seems to be questioning the social cost of action against possible Catholic traitors, which was, of course, deeply topical and controversial at the time. Now, I contend that this is interesting for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because these are traditional themes that universities, as well as nobility and courtiers, carried out as part of that humanist tradition for providing good and honest counsel to the prince, as previously mentioned. And then, one Martin Busser, the famous religious reformer, famous to his mum anyway, had advised Thomas Cromwell that Protestant theatre might be used to renew all forms of piety and virtue among the people. But official policy under Elizabeth took instead an increasingly restrictive view of such an idea. As early as 1559, a royal proclamation required local authorities to review in advance all manner of interludes to be played openly or privately, and to permit none to be played wherein either matters of religion or of governance of the estate of the common weal shall be handled or treated. Well, despite the spirit of restriction and control these proclamations embody, a feature of the English Renaissance theatre turns out to be its extraordinary diversity. Extraordinary for early modern Europe, that is to say, Playing in their part in this pageant and riot of creativity and fun, there were peers of the realm, members of universities, court officials, ex-students with MAs, those with BAs, college dropouts, members of the inns of court, the sons of various trades, scriveners, glovers, butchers, yeoman farmers, dyers, stationers, you mention it. The diversity reflects many of the changes then of the 16th century, that humanist revival of the classics, 
the academic cultivation of eloquence, increasing wealth for some and associated commercialization of popular culture, the vibrancy of religious debate through the Reformation, and maybe above all, the growth of the number of grammar schools. By 1600, England had 360 grammar schools, one for every 12,000 people, a proportion that would not be passed even in Victorian times. This education and opportunity, immersion in culture of the curriculum, ballads, libels, newsprints, broadsheets and so on, helped generate the playwrights and actors that would give theatre its expression in defiance of the Elizabethan statutes. To see the emergence of the infrastructure and business of drama, we might start then by going back to those travelling companies of players, such as, again, the Earl of Leicester's men. They might not just travel around the countryside, but, as you'd expect, they'd head off to London. But there were no permanent playhouses outside the court. Until in 1567, an example of a record survives of one John Brain, a grocer, paying out a substantial sum of eight quid for scaffolding at the Red Lion in Stepney. This is interesting for a small digression. Apologies. Although the Red Lion in this case was a farm, the name of the Red Lion is of course a common pub name, as you'll probably know, often claimed to be based on the arrival of James VI as King of England in 1603. A Red Lion was of course an emblem of the Scottish royal house. However, maybe this John Brain reference suggests not, that it actually predates Jimmy's arrival and was instead based on the emblem of John of Grant, who also had a red lion. Who knows? Who can tell? Anyone for the last chalk eyes. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Anyway, we also know that the Earl of Leicester's men played regularly at the Cross Keys in Gracechurch Street in London. While we're on the pub name thing then, the Crossed Keys are also a common name for boozers because they are the symbols of St Peter, the Apostle of Jesus who traditionally guards the gates of heaven and who apparently was therefore a notorious tippler while taking a break at the pearly gates. That second bit isn't true by the way and I apologise to anyone offended. That has got to be the last digression or we'll never get anywhere in this episode. We will all die of old age. I can already feel my brain dribbling out of my ear. However then, these examples of places for public performance were probably temporary structures rather than permanent playhouses. For the first recognised permanent theatre established to run a continuous schedule of plays, we need to go to 1574 and the Earl of Leicester's men again, who were granted the first official letters patent from the Queen. These letters were the result of a bit of a barney with the City of London Corporation, which was charging players to play. The letters patent from Elizabeth overrode the city's liberties, which is cheeky of them. The remit then given to the players was 
to exercise, use and occupy the art and faculty of playing comedies, tragedies, interludes, stage plays and other such like as they have already used and studied, or hereafter shall use and study as well for the recreation of your loving subjects as for our solace and pleasure. Well, that's nice. Solace and pleasure. Thanks, Queenie. Thanks, Dada's old man. Then there's a bit of guff about the City of London, followed by the rules. Provided said comedies, tragedies, interludes and stage plays be by the master of our revels before seen and allowed. Fair enough, Gov. Censorship, is it? Okie dokie. Well, the City of London was not pleased and they fulminated, as you often do when you are crossed. They responded by warning that there'd be the inordinate haunting of great multitudes of people, especially youth, to plays, interludes and shows leading to a phrase, quarrels and evil practices of incontinency in great inns. Not only that, but they worried about alluring maids, as you do. Alluring maids, especially orphans and good citizens underage, to privy and unmeet shows. The publishing of unchaste, uncomely and unashamed fast speeches. Fast shows, eh? Even worse than slow podcasts. Anyway, as night follows day, John Brain's brother-in-law then got in the act and was even more ambitious. He took a 21-year lease on some land in the east end of London for a theatre. For the name that he gave his new theatre, I will go to a quick anecdote about the Open Golf Tournament. The first Open Golf Tournament, as you will probably know, was held in Ayrshire in 1860. Now, when I once referred to the British Open to one of my Brexit-voking friends, he rather fiercely reminded me that it's called not the British Open, but THE Open. All the others have to call themselves something to distinguish them from the one and only true original. I am pleased to say that he said this with an accompanying grin, however, before you send me angry, angry messages about Brexiteers. Anyway, so given that this is the first permanent theatre we know about in Blighty, it was to be called just The Theatre, just like The Open. Very soon, however, there was a second theatre called The Curtain, on a road which is still called Curtain Road in London, as it happens. And it might actually have been a group of actors who built The Curtain, rather than an impresario or businessman. Anyway, the point is, we were off. Alluring maids, watch out. Those first theatres ran a lot of other entertainments as well, probably including bear baiting, sword fights, that sort of thing. But they were constantly being closed down and hassled by the city authorities. Hell hath no fury like a city corporation scorned. And who, of course, were also worried, genuinely, by those poor alluring maids and stuff. So, their next venture appears to have been made on the other side of the river, in Bankside, just across London Bridge in Southwark, where the air was more free, though every bit of smelly it has to be said, as in London. But outside the grasp of the corporation of the City of London is the point. So there could always been a bit more free and easy. There were the Winchester geese, for example, the prostitutes who worked the liberty of the Bishop of Winchester, 
The stews and bathhouses were down there, and all manner of goings-on by very dodgy people. The new theatre was built there on Bankside by a businessman, whose family came from Sussex, called the Henslows. Philip Henslow, for it was he, had gained his freedom of the city as a dyer, but probably never actually worked as a dyer. He seems to have used the family money to make various investments and buy land. Although he's not a knight, he'd certainly be described as a gentleman and had connections at court too, which would prove very handy in protecting his investments and keeping the theatres from too much official interference. So the new theatre was built on the site of a rose garden, as it happens, called the Little Rose. And so the new theatre was called the Rose Theatre. Philip Henslow will be a feature of the London theatre world until his death in 1616, and he clearly makes a lot of cash doing so. He was a businessman, was Henslow, proper professional and all. And although he clearly knew the actors very well, he made sure they signed contracts. His stepdaughter Joan married a famous actor called Edward Allen, and Henslow kept very careful accounts which have become known as Henslow's Diary, as they survive, and they tell us a lot of what we know about theatre in the 1590s. So the number of theatres around London and Southwark steadily grew and soared. By the 17th century, there were about nine of them, including, built in 1599, the super-famous Globe. You can, of course, see a reconstructed globe in Southwark to this very day, thanks to the efforts of Sam Wanamaker, amongst others. Every year I think I must go to the globe, only to find I've started too late and it's all booked up. This year, because Jane got involved and is much better at organising than I am, I will actually get there, and there will be much rejoicing. In 1608, Henslow built a further development, a private theatre in Blackfriars. Private means that it was covered over, because most of the other theatres, except the one at the King's Court in Whitehall called the Cockpit in Court, were open to the elements. By spending the extra cash, Henslow could attract a more upmarket clientele and high-paying clientele, such as those who saw the first performance of Webster's Duchess of Malfi, written by Thomas Webster in 1612. The design of theatres had been on the medieval model, so they were temporary structures, often built in barns or halls, the theatre-in-hall model. There might be a couple of choices for layout, either a stage at one end with seating on three sides, or a stage in the middle, surrounded by the audiences. Britannica tells me that the Confrérie de la Passion in Gay Paris was the first purpose-built public theatre in Europe since Roman times. The Théâtre de l'Hôtel de Bourgogne in 1548, and this followed the theatre-in-hall model. The theatre at Blackfriars in 1576 was also from an adapted hall. So, Britannica then also claims that the theatre of 1576 had the first truly innovative design in a public playhouse. It was polygonal, with perhaps as many as 20 bays and contained three levels of seating covered by a roof. The central area of the polygon was open air, and the audience there stood around a large stage, about five foot high, which was integrated into several of the bays at one end of the building. Behind the stage was a tiring house, the backstage area of the playhouse. 
I think there might also be a gallery, you know, for Juliet's and folks like that. We don't know much about the acting style, but the design of the theatres and the noise in the spectators' galleries and groundlings strongly suggests no noodling and wandering airily to oneself quietly behind pillars and a lot of stride to the front and declaim in stentorian tones. There seems to be some uncertainty about the scenery and costume used. In Italy, there was a tradition of using painted scenes with perspective and a backdrop. But this doesn't seem to have been the case in Elizabethan theatre, though I'm told Jacobean theatre began to get more elaborate. But mainly, since there were so many episodes and scene changes in the drama, the scenery had to be rather more basic. So, there might be a throne, you know, to say, hey, we're in a grand throne room. You can imagine all the other architecture stuff yourself. Just join the docks, losers. What do you want? Spoon feeding? Sort of thing. Probably without the insults. And people say things like, hey, we're off to Rome now. So, you know, verbal clues and all that. Incidentally, I learned that all this episodic stuff, moving days and moving places, was strictly against the old rules. Apparently, Aristotle, Aristotle, when he wasn't on the bottle, had decreed that all the action should take place in the compass of a single day and in one place. Do you know, the more I hear about Aristotle... I'm working up to a history of science at some point. The less I like the bloke. He was a regular old Tartar, as far as I could see, and had Europe in his thrall for centuries on end with all these petty and bossy rules. Renaissance theatre, of course, went all over the place in terms of setting, and the costumes could be very grand and became more so as time went by, but they didn't go in for historical or geographical accuracy, and basically wore the clothes of Renaissance blighty. On occasion, they might use a sort of trigger, trope, shorthand, as it were. So, if they were in Rome, for example, they'd chuck on a toga over their doublet and hose. Did the job. Realism, therefore, in none of this figured very highly. When they exited stage left, pursued by a bear, there was probably no bear. The actors performing in these theatres still have to be formed into companies sponsored by a noble patron, it's worth noting, by the way, that the patron gave the company no financial security, none whatsoever, not a sausage, not even a chipolata, not even one of those cocktail sausages on a stick. But of course, without said patron, they could not have existed under law. So, you know, nurks. And a good prestigious patron anyway could open up opportunities to perform at court and that sort of thing, which is very lucrative. So it was very important to your money-making potential to have a good one. It seems there became a bit of a hierarchy in the companies, so there were companies for the Earls of Pembroke, Warwick, Derby, Essex, Worcester, Sussex and Lord Strange. But two of the most prestigious were the Lord Admiral and the Lord Chamberlain's companies. The companies were formed when a group of investors, maybe a dozen or so, got together and became sharers, all taking a financial stake. The sharers might include actors to boot, so William Shakespeare became a sharer. But then our Billy was an unusually serious kind of man when compared to many of his peers who kept his head down, plied his trade, built up his fortune and all that. Shakespeare unusually, and I think maybe uniquely, worked exclusively for the Lord Chamberlain's men. William was probably an actor as well as a playwright, but the leading actor of the company was the famous Richard Burbage. Ben Johnson seems to have also tried at one stage to become a sharer, 
But our Ben was a very different character to William, completely financially incontinent, and soon got out of that game. The typical company might be composed of around 15 people or so, mainly actors, but there'd be someone to look after the wardrobe and then a bookman. They might also have some apprentices attached, but there'd be no women, sadly. The young apprentices would often play the women's roles. Now, the bookman that I just mentioned was important, looking after all the scripts, making copies for each actor, working with the Master of Revels to get approval, and, crucially, lodging scripts with the stationer's office, which is the only way to try and keep some sort of copyright over your work. Now their Privy Council worried constantly about all these companies and the impacts they would have on the minds and the morals of the people. They worried that they would become an alternative source of authority. And look, that is a problem, is it not? I mean, there are probably many people in the world that think Braveheart or U571 are accurate depictions of history, for crying aloud. In 1615, one author explained the problem that God only gave authority of public instruction and correction, but to two sorts of men, to his ecclesiastical ministers and temporal magistrates. He never instituted a third authority of players, or ordained they should work in his ministry, and therefore they are to be rejected with their use and quality. I can see his point. I mean, I'm not sure what God did institute by way of authority, but I doubt actors would specifically be high on his list. Could be wrong. If you were to select an actor as your primary source of authority, it might be interesting to know who you'd choose, though. I could see a good parlour game here. I might choose Norman Wisdom for no particular reason. Your suggestions on a postcard. Anyway, back to the question of authority. They were worried about all the social mixing going on in these theatres, all the posh and vulgar, in their words, rubbing shoulders together, and indeed rubbing Lord knows what other parts of the human anatomy, even women and alluring maids. And then the contents of the plays were often, well, enough to make your chin wobble. Incidentally, the chin wobbling analogy, frequently used in this podcast at various times, comes from my granny, whose chin always famously wobbled when she picked up a good hand of cards. Just by the by, so you know. So, for example, the Elizabethan and Jacobean player attacked the august and supernoble and clean-living merchants of London for usury and hard-dealing, would you believe? It criticised its clergy for incompetence and corruption, as in the plays The Ladies of London in 1581 or A Looking Glass for London in 1594, to the horror of the authorities and establishment, they were clearly guilty of publicising the faults and scandals of great manners, magistrates, ministers, and such as hold public places. And seriously, we can't have that sort of thing going on, can we? Where would all that end? Well, over the next couple of episodes, hopefully we will find out where that all does end. And to start off, We'll find out how the Privy Council tries to deal with this frankly scurrilous show of individuality, rebellion and creativity. I will therefore introduce you to the Master of Revels and, more sneakily, to the Queen's Men. Until then, gentle listeners, thank you so much for attending my humble show, for all your comments and reviews and all that. Until next time, good luck and have a great week.